This is exactly right. To my favorite murder. I'm Karen Kilgariff. I'm Georgia Hardstark. And I'm Keith Morrison with The Seduction. Oh my God. <laughs> he nailed it. He nailed it. It was perfect. <laughs> I have chills. That was epic. I can't believe we're looking at you. If I can admit something right off the bat, I fell asleep to your story on the Calm app the other night. You know, that's very, I, I think I'm glad to hear that, but. <laughs> It was so uh, crazy. They, the person, the producer of this thing, who's done a lot of it, mm-hmm. so she knows what she's doing. She just kept talking, asking me to go slower and slower. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Man. Well, I was like debating, should I tell you that I fell asleep to your voice? Like, that's cr- kind of creepy too, <laughs> saying that to someone. <laughs> but I mean, you are, you know, and I wonder if it's weird for you to know this now, that you are a household name. You're a person who's been on our televisions on NBC for 30 years. I mean, is that, what's that like for you, for people who they just know you? Uh, well, it's, uh, I'm not entirely sure, except that <laughs> it's, um, I mean, I just feel like a very lucky old guy, frankly. <laughs> and it, uh, it kind of happens um, without you being aware that it's happening. And, uh, and then, and then you don't know what to make of it. I don't know what to make. <laughs> when you go out with your family and people recognize you and want photos with you and everything, do they do they tease you? Your family tease you about it, or are they remorselessly? Yes, they do. <laughs> <laughs> That's exactly the right attitude, <laughs> right? But people are so nice, you know. They, oh, yeah. I, I never, almost never, ever get anybody is even hinting at being mean, so. Right, yeah. I'm a lucky person, I say. Yeah. It is funny, like you're in the true crime genre and you wouldn't think that that equates to the nicest, you know, listenership that you've ever, like that's what we experience too, just the kindest people. Yeah, well, it's true. Yeah. yeah. And I think, I think what I love is that you're so on board with the fun of it. And I think when I saw the Instagram, Keith leans on things, <laughs> which I know you, <laughs> you posed, you went and met them and posed for a photo. It's one of the greatest. True. Uh, when you played along, if you, it, that, that is a thing that you lean on, you just lean on things. It's part of your body language when you report. I love that. I, yeah. Why? I don't know. I don't know. It doesn't make any sense at all. <laughs> Well, you got to do something, right? right? While you're doing those throws. Sure, sure. There was this whole thing where people would walk all the time when they were talking to a camera. Mm-hmm. You know, they sit in the studio, they sit behind a desk or they stand in the studio, they don't move. But, but if they're out somewhere in the field or on the road, there's always kind of walking from one place to another. <laughs> Didn't think that made very much sense. So you're like, can I just hang out here yeah. and just <laughs> take right. it easy? For a second. You invented the journalistic lean, I think. Mm-hmm. That should go in the di- in the dictionary, right? <laughs> well, and the same thing happened. I mean, talk about playing along. When Bill Hader started doing an impression of you on SNL, which must have been... Do you want to talk about what that was like to experience? <laughs> that was probably the beginning of thinking, oh, 
that, you know, I wasn't just kind of going along doing stories that people were actually listening to them and they thought they were kind of strange. So when somebody makes fun of you, it is, I mean, in, in the incredibly skillful and funny way that, that he did, it's, um, I mean, you don't know whether to, what to say. It's both right. exhilarating and humiliating or a wonderful honor and kind of embarrassing at the same time. Well, that and that characterization is so over the top. It's like, it's ridiculous. I mean, that's the, you know, kind of the funny part about it. But then you went on too and played along with it, which is such a, you know, that's a good sport. Very sweet man. Mm-hmm. So didn't hurt me and he did it. <laughs> <laughs> did they warn you beforehand that that was going to be a character? No. No? <laughs> you know, I live on the West Coast and I got a call that first night from a daughter of mine who lived on the East Coast, and she was kind of screaming into the phone. <laughs> I feel like that deserves a heads up, but, mm. but you know. You know, or not. <laughs> or not. <laughs> Had there been a heads up, I would have worried about it. Right, right. Um, so can we talk about your early career? Because we heard a story that we were told to ask you about your first summer job when you were a stand-in. Oh, <laughs> Well, my father was what they used to call in those days a minister. This was in Canada, where I grew up, and he was a minister in the United Church of Canada, which was, uh, you know, still the largest Protestant denomination, I think. But one of the, what they call these days, the mainline Protestant churches, a very, um, you know, it tended to be a, on the more progressive side. So anyway, in the summertime, ministers needed to get time off, and they would, uh, you know, corral these uh, theology students from the university and have them go out and, and fill in for a little while for the summer in many cases. And I had just flunked out of college. <laughs> hey, us too. Uh-huh. We're, also, yeah. we're also college dropouts. That's right. Well, it's, a, it's kind of a, yeah, it's a special club, isn't it? <laughs> it is now. <laughs> so uh, I think he took pity on me and he, he pulled a string or two and he got me this gig. And the thing was, I'd been doing public speaking and other stuff before. So the thing was, though, I didn't, I wasn't exactly, uh, you know, devout. So uh, that's a problem. <laughs> a little conflict of interest, probably. Right? I didn't quite live the way a minister was supposed to live. <laughs> Particular little town. It's big of you to admit, because I feel like that's probably true for a lot of practicing ministers. <laughs> So yes, could be. Were there a bunch of people in pews just sitting there with their arms crossed like, mm-mm, no, we're not taking this from you, sir. <laughs> we know you, Keith. They might have been used to it. I remember one, I, I, one Sunday, and because I'd borrowed sermons from a <laughs> mine who was a minister, and he was pretty good at this sort of thing. And so he would, he would give me these to me, maybe use that and just stick with the script and see how, if that's any better. So I... Uh, I borrowed one of these one Sunday and I was right in the middle of it. And he was a kind of radical guy. He was saying radical things in this in this sermon. And I was getting into it because oh, this is cool. It, uh, it makes sense to me. I like this idea, you know, young and, and reckless. And I figured this will get a rise out of the, the folks in the back pews who were just these stolid kind of salt of the earth prairie types. And didn't blink, didn't cut a smile, didn't frowned and then they just um so 
was kind of when I realized that this is probably not the right gig for me. <laughs> you wanted to do some like rabble rousing and some yeah. kind of shaking things up a little. Yeah. <laughs> so journalism instead, I guess, is the... Well, yes. And um, the minister thing was obviously not going to be a, ever going to be a permanent something. And the, the option was to go back and have another go at college in the fall. Or not and take a year off and think about things. That when I was encouraged to leave, the dean of the school that I was attending said that I should probably grow up for a year or so before coming back. So, huh, good advice. So yeah, there you are. And uh, <laughs> I, I was I was watching TV one day and saw this guy reading the news on TV and thought I can do that. And mm-hmm. my neighbor was the editor of a local newspaper and needed a ride to go back and forth to work, and he was at the paper first and then went to this radio station in town. He needed to drive to both places. So I drove him and then he let me go and cover a few stories and, and read read the news on the radio. And that's when you knew? You were just like, this is it? And I, yeah, it was just a lot of fun. And I thought this will never pay the rent. It's a boring <laughs> story, but to continue it. So that was in September of the year I'd rather not mention. <laughs> By December, I was the kind of regular doing the morning run of newscasts on this radio station in Saskatoon, Saskatchewan. Cold, cold in those mornings. And I wasn't really very good at waking up on time. And I stepped in several times in a row and they <laughs> fired. Oh. <laughs> Plunked out of school, fired from my first job in radio. Uh, you're on the right podcast right now. Yes, I'll really. Right it's very relatable for us <laughs> yeah. and everyone that listens. But feeling a bit down. When somebody heard that I desperately needed a job at some in another radio station, heard this and called up and said, I can take you on, but I really can't pay you. So if you want to come just work for basically for free and you could, you know, we'll find you a garret to live in or something, you can do that. So I did. And that's when it got to be really quite a lot of fun. So did you never, you know, some people have to go to like school to learn the, the newscasting voice and everything. Did you never do that? No, no, no. And in fact, when I, the first job in radio, the station manager guy asked me what journalism school I'd gone to. And I said, I don't know, I'm going to do a journalism school. I didn't even know there were journalism school. <laughs> and he said, that's good because if you had been, I wouldn't hire you. We'd have to unteach you a bunch of things. Mm, raw talent. Yeah. yeah. I would imagine ministering is actually like a weirdly good practice for that, where the cadence, the delivery, yeah, everything. Yeah, it is. Yeah. yeah. It's all storytelling. I mean, everything being involved with communication amounts to storytelling. And how'd you make the jump to TV? Because then you became a newscaster, right? Well, yeah. And I wanted to do that when I saw that guy. And so I kept applying to a local television station in Saskatoon and they eventually hired me after a while, worked there, and then went off to another one on the West Coast, and then one in Toronto, and then on to the, one of the Canadian networks. Nice. You worked your way right up. Worked my way to the top, yeah. Because <laughs> if you can make it in Saskatoon, they say, you can make it anywhere. <laughs> That's that famous saying. Yep. Yeah. The old saying. If you're like me, you're always looking for a story to dive into. Whether it's a family drama or a mystery to solve, the key to getting hooked is the details. I need rich visuals and intricate storylines, and June's Journey has that and more. June's Journey is a mobile mystery game that follows June Parker, a daring young woman, on a quest to uncover the truth about her sister's murder. This is your chance to test your detective skills because you'll play the game as June herself. 
Explore beautifully designed scenes from the 1920s, like lavish estates and gardens. And don't forget to keep an eye out for hidden clues. There are twists, turns, and catchy tunes, all leading you deeper into the thrilling storyline. And if you play well enough, you could make it to the detective club. There, you'll chat with other players and compete with or against them. June needs your help, but watch out. You never know which character might be a villain. Shocking family secrets will be revealed, but will you crack the case? Find out as you escape this world and dive into June's world of mystery, murder, and romance. It's all just one tap away. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. That's June's Journey. Download the game for free on iOS and Android. Goodbye. Why do I always remember lyrics to songs, Karen, that I haven't heard for years, but I always forget my email passwords? I know, right? It's like our brains only want us to retain useless information, but with 1Password, that problem's solved. 1Password is an award-winning password manager that's trusted by families and large-scale companies alike. If you're tired of being the person that everyone texts for a streaming login, hand that honor to 1Password. They let you share logins with people and with groups. With 1Password, you can securely switch between any device type or operating system. That means if you're a family or business that uses both Mac and PC, you won't have trouble sharing your private data. Don't let the name fool you. 1Password does more than just store passwords. It can autofill usernames, payment details, and personal information. And they notify you about potential data breaches. For business operations, 1Password has a dedicated support team that will integrate its security tools into your existing workflow. 1Password saves everyone time. And we all know that time saved equals money saved. Your accounting department will thank you. Don't just listen to us. 1Password was named Wirecutter's best password manager. And companies like Salesforce and IBM trust 1Password to secure their most sensitive information. So you can too. Right now, our listeners get a free two-week trial at onepassword.com slash MFM. That's two free weeks at one, as in the number one, password.com slash MFM. Onepassword.com slash MFM. Goodbye. So I love the idea that then, because there was like a shakeup at the top at CTV. So you lost your job as a newscaster and the next day, the Dateline people called you. Dare I tell that story? Yeah. Would you? Always, please. Dare. Please. Gossip. Gossip. <laughs> Canadian. Gossip. Yeah. So it did, maybe it doesn't count, right? I don't know. <laughs> right. I'd been at NBC and I joined NBC in the middle of the 1980s at the local station in Los Angeles. And within a short period of time, I was working also for the network, reporting for Nightly News and Today Show and occasionally filling in on those programs. And it was a great job, great place to be. I always thought, well, maybe I'll go back home one day and I got a call asking if I would go and host the morning show in Canada. I shouldn't go into too much detail, but that would probably lead to this uh, numero uno uh, job, uh, the Tom Brokaw type job. Mm. So I thought, well, okay. And I went and had quite a lot of fun. Uh, hosting a morning show is is hell on the body, but it's... <laughs> It's quite a hoot. You know, you get to interview all kinds of people from, uh, you know, the serious to the silly and just kind of be a show person, which I'd never really tried to do before. So I liked it. But then the route up, which had been suggested, kind of was shut off when the person doing that job re-signed a contract. I thought, oh, okay, well, I don't know. And at the same time, Dateline was starting. This is Dateline at the very beginning, 30 years ago. So they offered me a job to go back. And I said, okay. But the CTV people talked me out of it and said, no, you can do that top job after all, because guy in top job wants to 
you know, share the job with you in order for you not to go away, which a big deal, right? Very nice. So the press conference and the whole nine yards and uh, a date was set and all the rest of it. And then I, you know, something happened. Maybe he changed his mind. I don't know what happened. <laughs> but one day I walked into the boss's office and he said, uh, you know, collect your things. You're out the door. <laughs> no explanation was ever given. Really? No idea who was behind it. Wow. What the story really was. Someone had an ego trip, maybe. Yeah. So anyway, it was either that day or the very next day that the, the Dateline went through a little couple of pickups there at the very beginning. But I got a call from the person who had taken over after they got them. He said, can you be in Pittsburgh tomorrow? It's a story about a lady who's running a transmission repair shop. <laughs> so I said, sure. Right. And it, that's how it got started. That was your first story as a lady running a transmission? The first story. I love it. Yeah. When did the true crime aspect come into it? Because I know it's, you know, you weren't that interested in true crime in the beginning or maybe hadn't thought about it. I really was not. You know, a long time ago, the very when I started in radio, the first job they the traditionally this Died in a little newspaper guy would give the starting reporter was to go down and cover magistrates' court every day, and that is it's a depressing place to be. You know, all mm-hmm. eggs people made are on full display. The uh, the you know the young and foolish things people do, the old and dried up things people do, and <laughs> nasty things that they do to each other. They all get displayed, and I had to do these stories about them and. You know, I was a minister's son. I preached the sermons, and I and here I was having to spill the dirt on all these poor people who had run afoul of the law, and I just felt bad about it all the time. So when, <laughs> when Dateline decided that they wanted to do more true crime, this gradually worked it in. I didn't want to go there because there are victims who really suffer in these stories, and yeah. and families of victims, and and you know, a murder sends ripples in all kinds of directions. It changes history for people. And, you know, you mess around with that at your peril, I thought. Mm-hmm. But, you know, they gradually came to realize that there is probably no kind of reporting that gets you closer to the nature of what makes a human being a human being. It makes us all tick. And what people will do in extreme circumstances. Hmm. Yeah. Do you think, I just came to my mind that you were saying how when you were ministering, you know, you you were doing some nefarious things of your own. And Karen and I both have some, that. well, <laughs> he's like, I absolutely did not perfect, say that. <laughs> you weren't the perfect person to be ministering is what you said. And in my mind just went to nefarious things because that's what my mind does. But you know, that Karen and I have been in some precarious, have put ourselves in some situations that are precarious, have been in, you know, have lived lives that aren't you know, no one would ex- take me as a minister, I promise you. <laughs> Not just because I'm Jewish, but so my point is, <laughs> do you think that you have like an understanding of how how easily you can make one split second decision and your life will be changed forever? And so you have an empathy towards the people you were, you know, seeing in court? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, I did an interview not long ago with a... Um, not quite so young man anymore, who had committed the most horrible crime he could possibly imagine, had planned it with a pal of his. You know, they were the two of those people who got together, troubled boys who got together, and, you know, the one individually wouldn't have committed the crime, but when the two of them got, what do they call it, a folie adieu or something, it was mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. And they, you know, they killed one of their best friends and were sentenced to life without parole, of course. It was an awful crime. They, you know, were making a little horror movie about it. Wow. So 15 years later, I'm interviewing him in prison. And he is an utterly changed person now. He is, a, you know, he is now a human being. He now not only feels terrible about everything he did and would like to make, you know, do anything he could possibly do to somehow make up for what he did. And of course, there really isn't anything he could possibly do. And so he lives with that torment every day of his life. But he was open about it. And he was like somebody you would like. So even though he planned this crime, they'd gone on for, and they misbehaved for probably months or even years. Um, you know, people change. And mm-hmm. you think, well, there is some kind of, I don't know what whether that's a redemption or not, but it's it becomes very hard to judge the totality of a person's life. And what they're worth, right. because they can be worth different things at different times. Yeah. Well, and it's it's very simple as also people who lifelong consume true crime media. Um, George and I talk about that a lot, where it's you get the story, the first version of the story, and you think, okay, this is the good person, this is the bad person. You you think you know. And then as we so when we started this podcast, it was very much like, oh, we're gonna talk about Ted Bundy and we're going to talk about John Wayne Gacy and the bad guys and all of that. And slowly but surely, it was the real stories here and the things that actually that we liked talking about and started talking about were, and I'm sure you've met lots of these people, the family members who go through these horrible things and then start their own foundation that start becoming victims advocates. That although, like you're saying, their lives are changed forever, there are those people that then become almost super heroic in terms of taking that grief and changing, trying to change other people's lives for the better. There's like the storytelling, it's like, we think we're in it for this part of the story. And then there's all these other things that kind of unfold where people really show who they are, who they can be. It's, it can be really mind-blowing. Oh, truly. Yeah. Uh, uh, Grief can be a powerful motivator one way or the other. People go down or they or they find a, a purpose. And sometimes the purpose can be amazing. Yeah. It's also interesting, and I think we're evolving to be more understanding of, you know, those ripples and how it also affects the uh, family and friends of the perpetrator. Sure. You interview those people all the time where it's hard for everyone, not oh, just absolutely. Uh, the obvious victims, but, you know... No, I- Expand. It's very hard. <laughs> and again, you know, it's very, it's difficult to look at somebody in the face and sort of go, "Jacques, you know, you're a bad, mm-hmm. done a terrible thing," and I and I want to show how on this television show how bad you are. Yeah. But one of my favorite fictional detectives is Inspector Maigret of Paris. Surete, I guess, the uh, novels that were written by Georges Simenon back in the, the early, mid-20th century. And he, he was a, a chief inspector who operated in Paris. The stories were all the kind of stories that we do on Dateline. You just, it's the same kind of stuff, and it happens over and over again. But, but his motto was, understand, but do not judge. And he would find himself being in relationships with uh, the criminals he was apprehending. And that some he would see the humanity, and at the same time he, he had to he had to deal with the fact that they had done this, and and 
they needed to pay for their crimes. Yeah, yeah. There isn't a hard line between good and bad. It's just kind of, we're all a little mixed up. Definitely. Yeah, very true. <laughs> well, it, it, that also makes me think of those few times on Dateline that I've seen when the hosts are interviewing, and I'm sorry to say it's often the husbands, and sometimes there's the husbands who you eventually find out they did it, and they're there to be interviewed saying they didn't. Those were the, are the ones, I've seen a couple of them, where it's just a, a kind of just a very flat-eyed, yeah. nope, they think they know better than everybody, and they're going to tell you exactly how it is. And, and then as the episode unfolds, it's clear that it's that person. Sure, sure. They, they, they always think they're the smartest one in the room, and they're going to, you know, they're gonna, and they're still doing it, even afterwards. I have a particular personality, all right. It's, and it, it starts out, again, see it all the time, but the, the personality of the abuser. Uh, and sadly, yes. uh, you know, the abuse of women by their male partners is uh, continues to be an epidemic. I don't think everybody's just that way. Very few have that kind of personality, sociopathic sort of personality, but the ability to manipulate somebody and to be so in control of their lives and then they cannot stand it when that person finally tries to escape. And that's when murder occurs. But it's a pattern that happens over and over again. So then these guys are sitting in prison trying to persuade you that no, 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 it didn't really happen. All these obvious things were just your imagination. Yeah. Those are not the people that I like very much. <laughs> no. I can't imagine. No. Uh, how chill. Have you ever been in that chick because you know you go in and interview these people face to face and some are admitted murderers some aren't admitting it have you ever had that feeling that chill I just would find it so chilling to look into the eyes and speak to someone that you know has done something so incredibly awful yeah, but everybody's different I mean some are pathetic mm. a man who a, another uh, two of them operating together Two guys who were doing what they could to get to as deep into the bottom of the barrel as they could and had all kinds of substance abuse issues and so on. But they would pick up young men, women on the street, sex workers in Orange County in California. They would take them away to um, their little hideout, which was behind a paint shop in an industrial part of town. And they would use them horribly, horribly, I mean, in unspeakable ways. And then dump their bodies into a uh, dumpster, which was right behind the paint shop. And every day, big truck would come along, pick up the dumpster, dump it into the back, take it off to the dump. And these women would wind up, you know, 50 feet down before next Thursday. So one of those guys agreed to be interviewed. And he had been in trouble before, off and on, many times. He was actually wearing one of the ankle bracelets that's supposed to keep track of him while he was committing these crimes. Wow. Mm. And... <laughs> He tried to tell me that it was really the state's fault that he committed these crimes because they weren't keeping proper track of him. And if they kept better track of him, better care of him, he wouldn't have been doing these terrible things. So he wanted somebody at the level of, you know, um, an important person in a police organization to take some heat for it. Uh, hmm. Wow. Just the strangest things. Then there was a... The, do you mind if I go on? Please, please. There was a preacher who came to believe, he was in one of those churches where they had unusual beliefs, and he came to believe that 
one had to have plural wives. Mm. Not a Mormon, not part of that faith, but his own reading, his own personal reading of the Bible was that you wouldn't be able to get to heaven unless you had two and preferably three wives. Lucky for him. Yeah, it's not, that's very convenient. Right. He had, he had one at the time and a couple of kids. So he went out and managed to find wife number two. And she was young and uh, pretty and, you know, 18, 19 years old. And she lived with them ostensibly as a housekeeper, but she was wife number two. And then after a while, she told him she wanted to better herself. She wanted to go to college. She wanted to have a career. She wanted to make something of herself. Didn't say she wanted to leave him. She just wanted to do these things. And his response to that was to send his senior wife off with the children for the weekend, take this junior wife to a restaurant, give her a steak, take her home to the house and kill her and put her in the bathtub and cut her into a bunch of pieces and put her into a mm. container and, and take her out to the desert and bury her under a cairn of rocks. Her remains were not discovered for two years while he kept on preaching. But when I interviewed him in prison, and I asked him about, you know, some theological type questions about his behavior, what he had done, and what he thought that would mean for his kind of eternal existence. And he said, no, I'm not worried about that at all. And I know she's waiting for me there in heaven. And when I get there, we'll be together again. <sighs> yes. So sometimes they do give you a pause. Most of the time, they, they're just kind of... <laughs> I love that you use the word pathetic because I do think that that is such a great word. You know, everyone reveres Ted Bundy or, you know, these these murderers, but they really are these pathetic people who can't, who just have these urges. And I, it's, I don't know. I, I just love the word pathetic mm-hmm. around it. it. It makes it, it makes, it's exactly what it is. It's not, it's not fascinating in that way. It's Yeah, that's, that's a good, that's true. Quite true. Yeah. Are those your most memorable datelines? Oh, the ones that stand out the I most? They just happened to pop into my head. <laughs> <laughs> You've got a lot. There yeah, are so many that. of them. I don't even know. I uh, mean, 30 years worth, right? Yeah, right, right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Georgia, have you ever been blown away by the most simple dish at a restaurant? Like perfectly scrambled eggs? Oh my God, yes, Karen. And then all I want to do is make that dish at home and eat it every day. Well, you probably could as long as you have the chef's secret ingredient, Made In Cookware. Made In was created to bring restaurant quality performance kitchenware to home chefs around the world. For years, they've built their business by supplying restaurants and top chefs with high-end cookware. Some of Tom Colicchio's most treasured dishes at his restaurant craft are made in Made In. Whether you're cooking for professional critics or just the critics you live with, your meals will benefit from the quality of Made In products. Like their carbon steel cookware, it combines the best of both cast iron and stainless steel clad, so it's rugged enough for grills or an open flame. It's the MVP of summer cookouts and cook-ins. What I really love about made-in cookware is that it actually makes something like having a Memorial Day barbecue much more convenient because you can keep everything on the grill if you need to throw, say, a pan of garlic up on the top while you're grilling your steaks on the bottom. It's strong enough, durable enough to do that. If you want to take your cooking to the next level, remember what so many great dishes have in common. They're all made in, made in. Save up to 25% this Memorial Day from May 18th through May 27th when you visit madeincookware.com. That's M-A-D-E-I-N cookware.com. Goodbye. Goodbye. 
There's something about the sound of an old-timey cash register that really takes me back. I know. It sounds like someone is about to hand me an ice cream cone, but it also sounds like we just sold some merch. That's right. And if you're a Shopify user like us, you know that this sound means you just made a sale. Shopify has helped millions of businesses sell their products online, but did you know they also offer the same support for brick and mortar stores? From accepting payments to managing inventory, they have everything you need to sell in person. So give your point of sale system a serious upgrade with Shopify. Shopify POS tracks sales across all your locations. That way you'll always know what you have in stock and where. They also provide reliable tech that fits your unique retail needs, like turning a tablet into a credit card reader. And if you're looking to reach new customers, check out Shopify's marketing tools. They're easy to use and they integrate with all social media platforms. With Shopify, we have a powerful partner for managing our sales. And if you're a business owner, you can too. Do retail right with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period today at shopify.com murder. And here's the important note, that promo code is all lowercase. So go to shopify.com slash murder and take your retail business to the next level. That's shopify.com slash murder. Again, don't forget the code is all lowercase. Goodbye. Do you have a most memorable dateline? I'm sure it's hard to, to pick just one. <laughs> it truly is. I mean, there are scads and scads of them that I, I just got very, very wrapped up in. Um, you know, one of my, uh, as long as we're talking about favorite, I'll tell you this this particular favorite story, one of many, and it's a pathetic story. So, you know, you may not find it at all interesting. There was a couple, a kind of a sweet, sad couple who lived in a small town in South Carolina, and they had three children, three girls. And they, you know, they barely scraped along. They lived in the poorest part of town. Their house was a, just a disaster zone, a mess. They couldn't keep a clean house. But they were lo- lovely people. They, they went to church every Sunday, and they, uh, they were good parents. And the wife worked at night to clean offices and so on. And the husband worked during the day delivering pizzas and other things like that just to try to make ends meet. He was also going to school to try to become a computer technician. And so he wanted to make something of his life. So one night, while the wife was at work cleaning some office somewhere, and the husband was asleep, a man came into their house and brutally raped and killed the eldest of the three daughters. But nobody knew this. He didn't even know it. He didn't wake up. And the reason he didn't wake up is he was wearing one of the early CPAP machines. But because he couldn't afford a decent one, his went very loud. Mm. The other little girls in the house didn't wake up either, so it wasn't any great surprise, but uh, this man managed to get in. But in the morning, he went in and he discovered his daughter's body. He saw there was a scarf wrapped around her neck tightly, and he mistakenly thought she had somehow wound herself up in the blanket and asphyxiated herself while she slept. He called 911, and he wasn't as... You know, when, when your 11-year-old daughter has been brutally raped and killed and you call 911, people expect you to be pretty upset, to say the least. Right. It didn't sound that way. Listening to the 911 call, the police are thinking, okay, this guy probably killed his daughter. That's what usually happens here. So when they came over, then they saw the messy house. Then they read that CPS had complained about the quality of the care of the children, not because they weren't good parents, but because their house was so messy. Mm. 
things began to add to each other. So they took this guy, they took him into the police station. He willingly went to talk to them. He didn't ask for an attorney or anything. He just wanted to explain what he saw and see if they could help him find out what happened to his daughter. And uh, they had him in there. I can't remember how many hours it was, but it was over the course of four days. He was interviewed for hours and hours and hours and hours and hours. And they kept telling him, you did it. You know, just confess you did it, you did it, you did it, you did it. He was accused and denied the accusation because somebody went and kept track. And they <laughs> they may have adjusted the number a little bit. I suspect they may have. He was he, he denied it 666 times. Oh, my God. Wow. But eventually they wore him down to the point where he, had, he said, yes, I did it. And so, bang, he was charged with first-degree murder. The whole town heard that he was charged with first-degree murder. His uh, wife was told that he was the most horrible man on the planet. His other daughters were, too. And she, her heart was broken. She died very soon afterward. Um, Under circumstances which were, frankly, a little, I don't know, they they never were worked out properly. But so... He's lost his eldest daughter and his wife, and he's been charged with first-degree murder. And then about a month later, the DNA results come back, and they show the DNA on his daughter was not his. It was somebody else's, some other man. And it just so happened that there had been a person burglarizing the neighborhood and assaulting women during that period of time. He was arrested. They checked his DNA. Lo and behold, his DNA was on this man's daughter. At that point, even though he'd been very publicly charged, the right thing to do would have been to say, that guy did it, not that guy. We're going to let the original schlub out of jail and let him go back to his life. But they didn't. They decided that it was a conspiracy, that the father had inspired with this guy to come into the house and break the daughter while the father watched. Oh, my God. Yes. And they took that to trial. And some of the best attorneys in the country, Eventually, he tried to you know, overturn this result, but he was convicted of first-degree murder. He was sent away for life, and you know, the Innocence Project got involved, and it was, everybody pushed so very hard to try to get this overturned because it was so obviously wrong. But, you know, it's a kind of life in prison. You know, he studied up on his theology. He became a prison minister, and he is, even though the whole town continued to believe he was guilty, the DA and the local prosecutors still preached that he was guilty. And when I did a story about him, suggesting strongly that he was an innocent man in prison for a thing he didn't do. The DA actually set up a special website to attack Dateline for our report. What? Yeah. So that was one that sticks with me. Eventually, this man died in prison. And so before he could be exonerated, and uh, that broke my heart. Yeah. (laughs) It's a dark story, but there are, you know, there are a lot of those, that's for sure. Definitely. Well, and that kind of story that points out where, and I understand where you, they can't just reverse cases easily and that, you know, I understand that piece of it. But to that point where they're bending the facts to suit what they've already tried to prove, yeah. that need to not be wrong with the authorities at times to the sacrifice of someone's actual life. And actually those two, the two sisters that, lived the other daughters that now don't have a mother or a father or an older sister. Yeah, and continue, as far as I know, continue to have beliefs, which is uh, just, uh, again, as I say, break your heart. Yeah, yeah. Yes, and there are lots of 
cases like that where they get them to confess to something and then undoing that is impossible, actually. Yeah. yeah. It's wild. Those That uh, conf- false confessions and then also the expectation of what one should sound like and how one should grieve when they find, like in a situation like finding your daughter dead. Mm-hmm. And if you don't fit those expectations, people assume things of you. Those two factors, I'm really... I, I like the fact that in this true crime area and in, you know, we're realizing that you can't have expectations. You know, you can't say, here's what you're supposed to sound like when you're grieving and no one would ever, who would ever confess to something they didn't do. It would never happen, period. But I like the kind of sea change that's happening around those. Yeah. And you must have witnessed a lot of those things that used to be the norm. Yes. Oh, yes. And uh, um, we've done quite a few stories about people who were, who, who confessed to something they didn't do, and and then the road back becomes very very difficult. But what and mm-hmm. watching that happen can be can be fascinating. Again, there's always a huge pushback and effort to try to keep them inside and not admit that a mistake was made is very strong. Whether it's simply because they don't want to be sued and lose money, or whether face, right. I don't I don't really know. We did a uh, one story where we explored the system which is used in most other almost all other industrialized countries. We happen to look at the one that was used in Britain, but the systems which are put in place to try to ensure that false confessions do not happen. Who has to be in the room? How long are you able to somebody? Uh, you know, and they have cut their false confessions by a almost to nothing. Hmm. The officers who were working in the homicide departments rebelled against this. They thought it was a terrible idea. They'd never get a conviction. But in fact, their clearance rate went up. Uh, so oh. hmm. one of the people behind this, this uh, new way of doing things in Britain, came to the United States and has been educating police departments around the country, which gradually have been adopting some of those methods so that they avoid false confessions, at least as much as possible. Yeah. Right. Is that one of those things, there was a made-for-TV movie about Fred and Rose West murders in England. And it was called, it's basically that there has to be an adult in the room if they think a person might not be understanding the full scale of what's happening to them when they're being questioned by the police. And it's just like basically a witness, an adult witness that's there to say, don't do that. Right. Don't admit to them. I think it was used for many years. You know, they're sort of sweating one of these uh, potential convictees. So you get a 16 or 17 year old kid in the corner of a a room. You make the Chill the room so it's cold, cold, cold. Mm. You keep them there all night long, no matter whether they're sick or not. You get two large detectives kind of leaning in over the table at this person, uh, working away. Now, you know, I'm sure they were well-meaning people, these detectives, but they were using a system uh, where they were trying to achieve what they believed to be true, a, a confession of something that they were pretty sure happened. But the kid in the corner is terrified one of the techniques is to say to the kid, you know, if you just tell us what happened, just tell us you did it, then we can, you know, we can take care of things. You can, And they leave the impression that the kid can go home and mother will deal with it or something like that. It, it, it'd be okay in the end. And of course it isn't at all. It's a trap and it's a terrible thing, frankly. Mm-hmm. I also think about the fact that for some of the false confessions, like the gentleman you just spoke of, 
they're also sitting in these rooms with all of those circumstances and all of those tricks. And they just went through something so incredibly traumatic. So they're not even in their right mind because of that, if it's something that personally happened to them. You're in shock. You just want to get home and take care of your people and try to find out what's going on. And so you're just in a really bad circumstance no matter what. And then you're being manipulated by professionals. Well, and at some point, the person in in the hot seat in the corner thinks, well, maybe I did do this. God knows bad. I must have done something. Right. Especially after the 600th time they ask you. I mean, that's so above and beyond. It's it's so crazy. Mm -hmm. Well, I think we should talk about should we talk about your new podcast? Do you want to tell us a little yeah. bit about what we can expect? <laughs> yes. The podcast is called The Seduction. And it is a story. What can I tell you? I'm not sure how much I can tell you about oh. this. <laughs> Just use general nouns. <laughs> um, no, but this is a, a story of a young man's fascination for love for a certain older woman. So we talked earlier about manipulation. Well, sometimes, sometimes, not as often, but sometimes it works in reverse. And the thing that made this worth doing a podcast, and we've wanted to for a long time, as soon as we started doing podcasts, we thought, we've got to do this story. It's a phenomenal interview with the man, was a young man, not quite so young anymore, who was at the heart of this crazy, crazy, strange tale. So the interview was, I, Barely had to say anything. Hmm. He wanted to tell the story. And he had the kind of personality, the kind of memory that had every single detail nailed down, locked into his memory, and he could just recite it one thing after another. I've never talked to anybody like that before who has his whole life sort of in a catalog that he can just talk about and talk about and talk about and talk about. I did this then, and then I did that, and then it was 8 o'clock and I did that. Hmm. That's a, a storyteller's dream. Yeah. Because the protagonist of your story, you know, if you're writing a novel, that protagonist would know all the details too, right? In real life, they never do. I mean, people don't remember or they don't tell you. But this is a kid who knew everything and told me everything. And we checked things out. He was not not lying about it either. Hmm. So it was was pretty interesting. um, If you think about the movie Double Indemnity, Mm-hmm. Or in a couple of other noir movies of that type, you have a fairly good idea of what this story is about. Mm. It takes mm. twists and turns, which uh, are more like uh, the movie Weekend at Bernie's. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> oh, oh, that's a reference right there. Is he the victim or is he the suspect? Or Well, the, you know, the question of what he was is a complicated one. Oh. Was he the victim? Was he the perpetrator? Was he a little both? Perfect tease. Yeah, is that in such a such a Keith Morrison voice? <laughs> so the se- seduction's coming out June fourteenth. That's right. Uh, among stories that we have done on podcasts, and I, I don't get me wrong, I love them all, but just this one is a corker. Mm. All right. Oh my god, I can't wait. A little bit dark corker. And also your your new Peacock series, The Last Day, is yeah. also coming out on June fourteenth. Yeah. yeah, it's a big day for you. It is. I, I, now, that, now that you told me, I know. Let's <laughs> <laughs> your calendar. Yeah, circle that day. Yeah. Keith, thank you so much. This has been, we're so honored that you would yeah. do this with us. We're truly huge fans of yours. Been listening to you and watching you. 
for a long time. And you really are, someone called you recently the granddaddy of true crime, which maybe, <laughs> sorry, that might be lightly insulting. But I mean, you're just, you've been in our lives for a long time. So we're really, we just appreciate the job that you've been doing. And we really appreciate that you're here. Glad I've been in your lives. Thank you. <laughs> Honored. Thank you so much. And you guys, you can also find Keith on Twitter at Dateline underscore Keith as well. And of course, watch Dateline too. Yes. NBC. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you, Keith. Thank you. Morrison. Take care, guys. You too. Bye. Elvis, do you want a cookie? <laughs> This has been an Exactly Right production. Our senior producers are Hannah Kyle Crichton and Natalie Wren. Our producer is Alejandra Keck. This episode was engineered and mixed by Andrew Epen. Email your hometowns and fucking hoorays to myfavoritemurder at gmail.com. Follow the show on Instagram and Facebook at myfavoritemurder and on Twitter at myfavemurder. Goodbye. Follow My Favorite Murder on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen so you don't miss an episode. If you like what you hear, rate and review the show. Visit exactlyrightstore.com to purchase My Favorite Murder merch.